this morning we're going to look at the Apostle Peter. And I have subtitled this, An Apostle of Contrasts. Peter, an Apostle of Contrasts. When we look at the Apostle Peter, Scripture presents him in a very direct, honest way. Uh, perhaps unlike any other leader that we find in the New Testament, we see both great low points in this man's life, as well as some very, very significant high moments. And it's in that that we see ourselves in many ways as we will look at the life of Peter. We will identify with Peter very much in some of those very low moments of his life, those times when he said foolish things and did foolish things, and all of us will say, yeah, that's me, and, and I'm right there. And yet we'll also see the power of transforming grace in Peter's life and how the Lord used Peter in such a dramatic way and will also testify to that transforming power and say, that's why I have those moments. God is so good. He transforms us, uses us in spite of us to do great things for His glory. And so Peter is that man of contrast. And as we look at Peter this morning, I, I, I'm going to organize our thoughts around these three characteristics of the Apostle Peter. First of all, we'll see, in terms of contrasts, his life from lowliness to being a leader, from lowly to leader. <coughs> Secondly, we'll see him from being a partisan to being a pioneer, a forerunner. Thirdly, we will see him from a champion to a coward. And then finally, we will see him from fair weather to fearless. Now before we get into that, let me quote from W.H. Griffith Thomas in his book on the Apostle Peter and the benefit that comes from examining the lives of men like Peter. He writes this, quote, Biography is very prominent in the New Testament and is of great value for study. It enables us to see human nature as it is in itself and to note what it becomes by divine grace. Simon Peter's life is of particular interest personally as a striking revelation of human character and divine transformation, officially and in relation to the church because of his prominent position. Well, as we get into Peter's life, just some background information about who Peter was and why we call him Peter, where his name Cephas comes from, and so on and so forth. His Hebrew birth name is Simon. Simon is the Hebrew name that Peter had, and we can see that in places like Acts 15, verse 14, and he refers to himself as Simon in the introduction to his, his second letter, 2 Peter 1, verse 1. We know also from the scriptures, particularly John 1.42, that his father's name was John. John 1.42 says, And he, that is Andrew, brought him, that is Peter, Simon, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now, his hometown was a town in the northeastern part of the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So if you look on the map here, 
you'll see where Bethsaida is located, a fishing village just off the Jordan River and on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as we're going to see in a moment, Peter was a fisherman, so it would be a great place to grow up if you were engaged in that trade of fishing. Let's come back for a moment to his name, Cephas. Where did Cephas come from? What's, what's with that name? In fact, Cephas is the name that Paul prefers to call Peter. Whenever Paul refers to Peter, refers to him, I think it's ten times in, in his letters, eight of those times Paul calls him Cephas, and only twice he calls him Peter. Well, Cephas was the Aramaic nickname that Jesus gave to Simon. We saw that in John chapter 1, verse 42. Jesus gives him this name, Cephas. And in Aramaic, it means rock or, or stone. And so Peter actually comes from the Aramaic. That Aramaic nickname, Cephas, is translated into Greek as Peter, Petros. And we see that name used in places like Mark 3.16 and Luke 6, verse 14. We also know that Peter had a brother named Andrew who will be a co-disciple, a disciple, a co-follower of, of Jesus. Andrew is actually the one who first introduces Peter or Cephas, Simon, to Jesus. And both these brothers, Andrew and Peter, were Fishermen. We'll come back to that in just a moment. That's important. Peter, as we will read later, was married. He had a mother-in-law. We read of that. And then Paul will make reference to the fact that he had a wife in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5. So out of all the, the disciples, we, we know that Peter was married and, and, and had a mother-in-law. And uh, so went through all those kinds of issues with a, a mother-in-law. But mother-in-laws are great. This is Father's Day. So I don't know where mother-in-law came from. But, uh, he was married. He was married. And Peter was also a devout Jew. He was a devout Jew who took the Old Testament promises literally. Now, by the first century, a lot of the interpretation of the Old Testament had been skewed and, and, and traditions had been added and, and the promises of the Messiah had been obscured by all the religious teaching of the day. But we find that Peter and Andrew were among those who, like as we read in the birth narratives of Jesus, like Zacharias and Anna and Simeon, they were devout Jews who were waiting for the consolation of Israel. Peter was one of those. And so when Andrew meets Jesus, he goes then to Simon and says, Simon, we've found him. We've found him. So this is Peter's background. This is how he was raised. This is, this is in the context of, of his early life. And then, of course, he meets Jesus and then his life is forever changed. Now, when it comes to Peter's interaction with Paul, this is very fascinating. 
Because here we find two of the great leaders of the church, two of the greats, two of the most influential men uh, in the history of the church, and it's fascinating to consider their interaction because by all accounts, their interaction was actually surprisingly minimal. They interacted with each other only on a few occasions, and some of the references to their interactions are even references that appear to be from a distance. And that's just amazing when you consider that. Here are the two greats, the apostle to the Jews, the apostle to the Gentiles, and they have minimal interaction. Peter, he became the undisputed leader of the twelve. And his ministry became the focus of the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. He authored two of the letters of the New Testament and then was very significantly involved in the composition of the Gospel of Mark. He essentially assisted Mark in the composition of Mark's Gospel. So here you have a very significant leader in the church. Then you have Paul, the, the great apostle to the Gentiles the one whose ministry is the focus uh, of chapters 13 to 28, those 16 chapters of the book of Acts, the one who authored 13 of the letters of the New Testament. And when you look at the scriptural evidence, you find that their interaction was actually limited. And that's not a bad thing, because as apostles, their commission, their message... Their, their ministry was directly from the Lord Jesus himself and was not in any way reliant upon any tradition, any human instrumentality. These men were sent by Jesus directly. And they were sent into, you could say, somewhat different vineyards to work. But we do have some information about these two men and their interaction and And I'm not going to get into all the details, but let me give you a timeline of their lives so you can kind of get an idea of the scope of their lives and how similar it is and yet how limited their interaction was. They probably were born around the same time. We don't know directly. If you had to twist my arm, it seems to be that Peter is a little older than Paul. Paul may have been born even around 85 We just don't know definitively. But roughly within the same decade, they were born, of course, in very different places. Paul was born in Tarsus, and Peter was born in Galilee. We know that around the year 8026, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he had three years of ministry leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension in AD 30, Sometime late in AD 26, roughly around that time, we know that Peter was called by Jesus to follow him. Of course, three years later, as I mentioned, you have the atonement of Christ, the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ, and then you have the start of the church, the birth of the church, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, and that we can point to AD 30, Paul's conversion, completely away from the influence of Peter, we don't read of any interaction of Peter and Paul before that time, 
Paul's conversion happened outside of Israel on the way to Damascus, over 100 miles away from, from Jerusalem. Paul's conversion happened probably around the year AD 33. Now, the first time we know definitively that Paul and Peter interacted was three years after Paul's conversion. If you go to the book of Galatians and read in the first or in the middle of Galatians chapter 1, Paul describes his conversion and says, and then three years later, after he had been converted there just outside of Damascus, and after he had spent time in Arabia, Paul, uh, Paul comes back through Damascus to Jerusalem, and it's there that we read for the first time he interacts with Peter. I'll talk more about that, but it was a brief interaction of 15 days, two weeks. That's all it was, and then due to threats against Paul's life, Paul is forced to leave Jerusalem. But two weeks of interaction there, around the year AD 36. Then, in AD 49, we have this important event called the Jerusalem Council. From all that we can tell, this is the next time that Paul interacts directly with Peter at this important ecumenical council, the first one, and the only one that was led by apostles and has binding authority, is that one in Acts 15. And there, Peter and Paul are in the same context there in Jerusalem as they decide the issue of the connection between Jewish believers in Jesus and Gentile believers in Jesus. How are these two very different groups to interact with each other? Is there to be two separate churches? Much like in Judaism, you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Was that how the early church was to develop? Or were the Gentiles to become Jews in order to become true Christians? And we'll come back to that issue, but that was a, a very important theological issue that the apostles had to define and, and uh, had to solve that early tension. And Peter and Paul both play very instrumental roles in that first council. Then, just a short time later, there is some more interaction, but not longer in Jerusalem. Around that year, AD 49, Peter goes up to Antioch in Syria, again a couple hundred miles away to the north, and there there's some interaction where Paul was staying in the church of Antioch. Just before his second missionary journey, there's interaction there once again between Peter and Paul, by any stretch, it was not a long interaction. Again, we're talking about a pretty minimal amount of time. Now, after that, we really don't we don't read of any direct face-to-face -face personal presence kind of interaction. However, we do read that in AD 55, when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he makes reference to Peter. He makes reference and he uses the name Cephas, refers to him several times in the context of his letter to the Corinthians. By that time, Peter had already uh, established a, a, a notability, so to speak, in Corinth. And so, as, as Paul writes from Ephesus to Corinth, he's referring to Cephas, whom the Corinthian believers had come to know personally. 
We also find that Peter, uh, or Paul, writes about Cephas and Peter in Galatians, which was written right around the same time as, as 1 Corinthians, around the year AD 55. But again, those are references that are not personal in terms of personal interaction. They're, Paul is, is writing about Peter's ministry in those cases. Then in AD 66, AD 67, sometime around there, we do uh, know that uh, Paul was martyred. In his last letter, 2 Timothy, Paul writes very candidly in chapter 4 that he believed his life was over. And he says, he defines his life in terms of finality. He says, I fought the good fight. Paul recognized that his second trial now before Caesar was not going to end in a release as it had the first time he fully expected to go and meet his glorious Savior. Paul was martyred around that time. Around that time also, Peter writes 2 Peter and makes reference in a very positive way to Paul's writings, calling them Scripture. But also makes reference to the fact that Paul's writings can be at times difficult to interpret, but he nonetheless refers to Paul's writing as Scripture. And then, of course, according to church tradition, Peter was martyred shortly after that, again, around the year AD 67. So there you have their, their lives, and you can see that it stretches over a period, both of them living in the same, roughly the same seven decades of history, and their personal interaction probably only being, in terms of quantity, their personal interaction perhaps being only months of time spent together, not more. Very interesting, like I said, as it pertains to the lives of these two great leaders of the early church. Again, Griffith Thomas states about this. He says, These two apostles, in many respects, stand out from the rest of the leaders of the early Christian church. Humanly speaking, earliest Christianity was dependent more on them than on any of the others. The circumstances of the association of these men are amongst the most interesting and significant incidents of early church history. With that said, let's dive a little bit deeper into Peter's life. And the first observation we will see in this man of contrasts is the contrast between lowliness and leadership. Moving from lonely to leader. Peter was, by trade, a fisherman. And that's not how you might think of fishing today. Not on a nice yacht, you know, with pulling up, you know, really nice tuna from the Atlantic or the Pacific. Uh, being a fisherman in, in the first century was to be a peasant. It was a lowly, a lowly kind of labor. It involved a lot of physical labor. It was dangerous to be on the boats. Everything really was dependent upon your skill in, in, in reading the waters. And more than that, it was dependent on many things outside of your control, where the fish would be and whether there would be fish. It was a very difficult life. It was the low class, the uneducated. It was dangerous, demanding, 
And there was much dependency that was related to it. We read in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to, to 20, we, we read of Peter's calling and this reference to being a fisherman. Matthew records this, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, in this little description, we see a very different background from that of the Apostle Paul. Peter lacked the education and privileges that Paul had. Paul was educated very, very well. And you see that in his writings. You, you see that in his awareness of, of philosophical systems and even of the Gentile world and so on and so forth. And even with respect to his Jewish upbringing, Paul was educated at the feet of Gamaliel the leading rabbi at the time, the rabbi whom the Jews thought had the glory of Israel at that time in terms of education. That was Paul, but Peter didn't have that, nor did Peter have what Paul possessed in terms of citizenship. Peter was not a Roman citizen. And so as Peter's life goes forward and as Peter begins to minister in Gentile lands, Peter is in much greater danger than Paul was due to his status. Peter's personality was also very different than Paul's. He lacked Paul's refined manners and instead was known as being raw. He was impetuous, impulsive. He was dramatic in what he said, how he responded. He is a man of extremes. And that's different from the Apostle Paul. In fact, when we look at Peter, we can see this dramatic, this impetuous nature, can't we? And we can associate it with some very, very significant vacillations. For example, we know this one in Matthew chapter 16, where on the one hand, Jesus asks his disciples to answer the question, who do you say that I am? The most important question that anyone can answer, and Peter gives a great response. We, we could read of that in Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus responded to Peter when Peter said, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, son of Jonah. Peter took them him then aside. A few moments later, after Jesus explains what must happen to the Christ, Peter takes him aside and rebukes Jesus after he acknowledges him as the Christ, as the Son of God. A few moments later, he rebukes the Son of God. It was Peter. And the Lord has to say to Peter, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but on man. Another vacillation is there at the, the final supper that the disciples enjoy with Jesus as Jesus prepares them for his departure. That section of John's Gospel is known as the farewell discourse there in the upper room. And Jesus goes to wash 
Peter's feet. And, and, and Peter says to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus says, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And then what does Peter say? Then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. That, he, he, he just was this kind of impulsive character. And then, of course, one that we'll return to in a few moments, the vacillation that happens even right before Jesus' death. I won't read it, but in Matthew chapter 26, you read of this. On the one hand, Jesus predicts the fear. He, he prophesies of the falling away of the, the, the disciples. And, and Peter says, no, no way, not me. Uh, I will die for you. And then Jesus has to reprimand Peter. And then just a few hours later, what happens? Peter does exactly what Jesus foretold. And he even curses those who connected him with Jesus who is on trial. As Pastor John has written, he says this, quote, Peter was eager, aggressive, bold, and outspoken with habit of revving his mouth while his brain was in neutral. <laughs> By nature, Simon was brash, vacillating, and undependable. He tended to make great promises he couldn't follow through with. He was one of those people who appears to lunge wholeheartedly into something, but then bails out before finishing. He was usually the first one in, and too often he was the first one out. That's his lowliness. But Peter was also called to be an apostle. And more than that, we read of his calling in Matthew chapter 10. This is a second calling for Peter. He was first called personally and, and in a private sense with Andrew and Peter there. Uh, Jesus called them to be his disciples. But in Matthew 10, Peter is not just called to be an, a disciple. He's called to be an apostle. And there is a difference in the terminology. The term Disciple simply means learner, but the term apostle was something much more serious. It was formal. An apostle was a delegate. And a, an apostle was an emissary. Uh, an apostle was a representative, and Jesus called Peter to be an apostle. And more than that, when Jesus gave that calling to Peter, this impetuous vacillating man of lowly background, we find out that Peter rises to the top and becomes the leader of this band of apostles. It's interesting to note that wherever we find the lists of the twelve in the New Testament, Peter's name always comes first. In fact, the 12, uh, I'll, I'll show this slide right now. You can look at it later. You can go on to uh, the website and, and, and look at these slides later. We don't have time to get into it. Whenever the 12 are, are described, are listed, they're put into categories of four. And in the first category, you have those closest to Jesus, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And in every time, even though the numbers 2, 3, and 4 will be mixed up, Every time Peter's name comes first in the list 
of these apostles. Indeed, Peter was the leader of the twelve. He was the one whose name is mentioned more than any other name in the Gospels other than the name Jesus. No other name is mentioned as much as Peter's, with the exception, of course, of the Savior's. He is the one who asked and answered more questions than any of the other disciples. He was one of the only three witnesses who witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. He was the one of only two who actually did remain close to Jesus during his trial. Of course, he denies and then flees, but all the others, with the exception of John, had already fled. He was the first of the apostles to see the resurrected Christ in the providence of God. God reserved that in terms of the men, in terms of the disciples for Peter. He was the one, Peter, to oversee the replacement for Judas Iscariot, the traitor. He was the first one to preach on the day of Pentecost. He was the first one to make a defense before the Jewish Sanhedrin and as we will see, he's the first one to bring the gospel to the Gentiles in a formal manner. Again, Pastor John writes this, Peter was exactly like most Christians, both carnal and spiritual. He succumbed to the habits of the flesh sometimes. He functioned in the spirit other times. He was sinful sometimes, but other times he acted the way a righteous man ought to act. This vacillating man was the leader of the twelve. And it is this role as Peter's leadership of the twelve and leadership in the early church in those opening chapters of the book of, of Acts that draws Paul specifically to Peter. When Paul, three years after his conversion, returns to Jerusalem, he seeks out primarily one man. He seeks out Peter. You can read of this in Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. He says, three years later, after his conversion, just outside of Damascus, he says, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I did not see any other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. The idea there of to become acquainted means to visit with the purpose of obtaining information. Paul sought out Peter for some important information. Now, Peter, or Paul did not come to Peter because he needed to know the gospel from Peter. He did not come to Peter because he needed approval from Peter. He did not come to, to Peter to, to learn the, the basics, the fundamentals of the person of Jesus. Paul already knew that from his study of the Old Testament Scriptures and from his meeting with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul already knew the gospel. He had been preaching the gospel in Damascus and Arabia. That is not why he came to meet Peter. But Paul was not a witness of the three years of Jesus' life. And so Paul needed Peter to fill in the details of the one whom Paul had not seen in his pre atonement state had not seen as he walked those three years and taught the one whom he had not seen prior to Damascus who had ministered those three years yet whom Paul loved so much he came to Peter for details 
you can imagine the conversations for 15 days where Paul says to Peter, Peter, what was it like? What was it like to hear him teach to the crowds? What was it like to see him heal that woman who had been bleeding for years? To heal the blind, what was it like? What did he say on this issue? What did he say about this particular thing? In fact, in Peter's or in Paul's writings, there are some moments where Paul does refer to knowledge that he gained from others. And we can direct that back to Peter. So, in Peter, we see a man who went from lowliness to leadership. Secondly, we also see a man who went from being a partisan to being a pioneer. Paul, Peter was raised as a Jew. Peter was raised as a Jew. And as a Jew, Peter practiced strict separation from fellowship with the Gentiles. That was the literal fulfillment of the Mosaic Law. You were to keep yourself clean. In fact, even in the appointment of Peter as an apostle, notice in Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, that even at that point, as Jesus is still in his earthly ministry, and he's raising up these apostles, and the, the, the ministry is going forth, that the kingdom is being presented to the nation of Israel, Jesus uh, uh, establishes this band of apostles, and he sends them out. And notice their audience. Jesus says to them, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In the initial stages of Peter's ministry, he was focused exclusively on the Jews. And even after Pentecost, even after the Jews as a nation, as a people, had rejected the Messiah... And a new program is instituted, the program called the church, when the gospel now is going to go out to the Gentiles as Gentiles. Even then, as that day of Pentecost comes and the church is established, Peter's initial ministry is, is on, it's toward the Jews. And, and he is focused there so much so that, that, that that's what he considers himself to be as an apostle to the Jews Later on, Paul will even refer to that, the recognition that Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, to the Jews, Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. But it's important to note that it's Peter, not Paul, who launches the ministry to the Gentiles. Now, this is interesting because in a way, Paul did launch the the ministry to the Gentiles through his persecution of the church. That was something very unintentional on Paul's part at that moment. Remember, Paul was responsible for the stoning of Stephen, and then Paul began a murderous uh, time seeking out Christians, Jewish followers of Jesus, there in the area around Jerusalem. And so those early Jewish Christians begin to flee, and some of them go to other parts, and they begin evangelizing the people outside of of Israel. And even with Peter, it's interesting to note that his ministry to the Gentiles was not initially by intent either. And there's an interesting chapter in the book of Acts. You've read it, Acts chapter 10. And Peter's interaction with 
Cornelius. And this is what we read in verses 34 to 38. This is important as we recognize how the gospel now is formally brought after 10 chapters in the book of Acts, after several years, finally Peter is the one, the first apostle, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember what Jesus had had given them in the commission. Go and, and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. But it took years before the apostles finally got that. And here it is with Peter, Acts chapter 10. Peter is brought to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, a centurion. He was not a proselyte to the Jewish to the Jewish religion, although he was a God-fearer. He recognized that the God of Israel was the one true God. And Cornelius invites him, and, and of course it takes a miraculous vision to Peter to get him to go. And finally, Peter is divinely moved to this house of the Gentiles, a house that he would never enter up to that point in order to keep his cleanliness. He moved, God moves him there. Cornelius asks about the gospel in Acts 10, verses 34 and following. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. There is the message to the Gentiles. Everyone who believes... It's not limited to the Jews. This is a universal call, a universal truth. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And while Peter was still speaking these words, just like on the day of Pentecost there in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit fell on those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers, the Jews who came with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay a few days. And Peter did. The first of the twelve to spend time in a Gentile home. The first of the twelve to baptize a Gentile believer. This is Peter. From partisan to pioneer. We read then in Acts 11, the next chapter, that word reaches Jerusalem. Wait a minute, Peter. What have you done? What's going on here? You just baptized a Gentile? He's not even circumcised. He hasn't even become a Jew yet. What are you doing, Peter? There was still a lot of ignorance on their part. And, and so we read in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 4 and 17 to 18, Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, 
And he gives them the account and then concludes with these words. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. One commentator writes this, The central point of this episode, Acts chapter 10, verse 1 to 11, verse 18, is the gradually but decisively emerging conviction that the messianic movement of Jesus' followers is not limited to a particular ethnic group, but is open to all people, irrespective of their ethnic and religious background, provided that they come to faith in Jesus and receive God's Holy Spirit. Well, from lowly to leader, from partisan to pioneer, thirdly, from champion to coward, from champion to coward, here we have a contrast moving in the opposite direction, but it's important to look at this too. Peter initially was the champion of grace among the twelve. And he championed grace in Jerusalem. We saw that in his update or report to the leadership in the Jerusalem church after the Cornelius conversion in Acts chapter 11. But we also find this at the Jerusalem council, that important, only authoritative, ultimately authoritative council that has ever happened. It it happened in, in, uh, in, in, in Acts 15. And there at the Jerusalem Council, we we read of those who had come together to to deal with the problem that had initiated, uh, or that that, that had started in Antioch to the north, Syrian Antioch, where a church had developed there, a Gentile church, those who came out of paganism directly into the church, having repented of their idolatry and immorality and embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior. But they never were circumcised. They never started to follow all the Mosaic laws, the food laws, and so on and so forth. They they just came to believe in Jesus Christ. And the Jews in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers, said, hey, wait a minute. It doesn't happen that way. They must be circumcised. They must submit themselves to the Mosaic law, and then they're true followers of the Messiah. And, and, And a great debate broke out, and it needed to be settled, and and that's why the Jerusalem Council took place. And we find in the Jerusalem Council a great statement by Peter. You'd think Paul would be the one to shine there at Jerusalem Council, and I'm sure he did, but the one who shone at the Jerusalem Council is Peter. And Peter makes the most definitive statement on justification by faith, a great statement that we should all recognize and see is coming from Peter's mouth. We read this in Acts 15, verses 5 to 11. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, believed in Jesus, stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them, the Gentiles, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and elders came together to look into this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we, have been able 
to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they also are. Now we don't have time to dive deep into those last two sentences. But there is profound theology there. This is one of the great statements about the gospel you'll find in the New Testament. And it came from the mouth of Peter. One of the great statements that emphasizes that we are not saved by works. We are not saved by making ourselves worthy of the forgiveness of God. Making ourselves worthy to receive faith. Making ourselves worthy to receive grace. Not at all. That mindset, Peter says, was a yoke on the backs of the Jews that they had placed there that neither the forefathers nor those in Peter's generation had ever been able to successfully bear. It was impossible. It was a misunderstanding of the law. And Peter brings that forth. And then he says in this great statement, this moment when it mattered most, Peter delivered the definitive statement in defense of the gospel of grace through faith alone. His statement ensured that there would remain just one church, not two, one church united in this gospel. And notice how he places the order of his assertions. He says, we believe. He doesn't say, we think, or we should believe. He states this as settled. We believe that we, the Jews, are saved in the same way they are. Notice he did not say, we believe they are saved in the same way we are. They are saved in the, we are saved in the same way they are through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Not by works, not by circumcision, not by observing the law, nothing. It is all of God. It's by His grace and His alone. Friends, this came from the mouth of Peter... And this is what was instrumental in keeping the church pure. This came from Peter. And to demonstrate Peter's conviction in this, immediately after the Jerusalem council, he goes up to Antioch. He goes up to Antioch, where the dispute started, makes the way to the north, and he goes to fellowship with all those Gentiles who had believed in Jesus and become part of the church, there's no longer any problems, at least at the moment. <laughs> but Peter did recoil after this. Again, a testimony to his, to his impetuous personality. We carry those traits with us throughout life. What is our greatest strengths also turn out to be our weaknesses, and that's what we see in Peter. He recoils in Antioch. Paul records this in, in a brutal statement of honesty related to the character of Peter. Paul records this in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul comes up to Peter and says, Peter, I know you're enjoying bacon at home. In fact, Peter, I know you enjoy bacon cheeseburgers. You do that in private, and then you show up to the, to the congregation, and all of a sudden, because of your fear of these guys who have also come up from Jerusalem, now all of a sudden you're saying, no, no, I, I, I don't eat bacon. Nope. I don't have cheeseburgers. Nope. All kosher. All kosher. And then you go back home, and what are you back into? Your, your great cheeseburger. Bacon on it. And Paul says to him, you're living like a Gentile, but you're asking the Gentiles to live like Jews. Now, Paul refers to Peter's actions not as apostasy. Peter, in his convictions, had not abandoned the gospel of justification by grace alone through faith. That wasn't the issue. The issue was hypocrisy. Living like one man in the privacy of your own convictions and at home... And then living like another man when other people are watching those who would come and were causing problems. The word hypocrisy means to create a public impression at odds with one's real intent. It was used, this word, to refer to stage actors, to put on a mask. That's what Peter was doing. He put on the mask when he showed up at the church. And Paul called him out. F.F. Bruce writes, in Paul's eyes, this was a piece of play acting. Because Peter had no conscientious scruples about eating with the, the Gentiles. Peter's example, moreover, was followed by other Christian or Jewish Christians there. Worst of all, it was followed even by Barnabas. The effect of this action on Gentile Christians must have been devastating. They must have felt themselves relegated to the status of second-class citizens in the church with no hope of attaining first-class status except by submitting to circumcision. Paul calls amount. Now there's no record that Peter doesn't repent. No record. In fact, even though we don't read in Acts or in Galatians 2 that there was a turning on Peter's part and a reconciliation with Paul, that's not Peter's point in, in, Act, in Galatians 2, but we can clearly assume it because later on, some six years later, Paul is writing about Cephas again in 1 Corinthians but six years after this episode in Antioch, and, and, and Paul doesn't at all refer to Peter's lapse. Eighteen years later, after this incident, Peter writes Second Peter, and he refers to Paul, and there's no indication that there's any animosity. The assumption that we bring from all of that is that they were reconciled. Peter must have repented and and reconciliation was found there, that is clear to assume from the basis of the rest of the Scripture. And we also know that both Peter and, and Paul will, will, will begin sharing each other's delegates. Silas and Mark, for example, will, will be two individuals in particular who will be of great assistance later on in ministry to both Peter on the one hand and to Paul. Well, we've seen from lowly to leader, from partisan to pioneer, from champion to coward, now fourthly, from fair weather to fearless. From fair weather to fearless. We see Peter's fair weatherness in his denial of Jesus at his trial. 
Matthew chapter 26 records this in verses 69 to 75. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little while later, the bystanders, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for even the way you talk gives it away. And he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. At that crucial moment, Peter denied that he ever knew the Lord Jesus. And he didn't just deny Peter cursed, he swore, he denied any association with that man on the eve of the crucifixion of Jesus. That man who had called him to be a disciple, that one who had trained him for three years, spent so much time with Peter, invested so much in him, and after those three years, Peter in that moment denies but Peter was restored by the one he denied. After the resurrection, Peter goes back to his old life. A statement in John chapter 21, verse 3 summarizes it. Even though he's seen the resurrected Jesus, Peter counts his life as having any use to Jesus as being over. And so he says, I am going fishing. That's not a pastime. He says, I'm going back to my old life. It's over. I failed. I denied him. We have this precious account in, in John 21 of the restoration of Peter. Verses 15 to 17. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because... He said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Now several of observations we make from this. First of all, in a dramatic way, Jesus restores Peter to fellowship. He restores Peter to by offering him a new call. Now it's no longer just follow me. Now it's shepherd my sheep. Shepherd my sheep. Jesus' restoration here is a beautiful picture of gracious condescension. There's no retribution on Jesus' part. There's no desire to bring judgment and discipline. 
into Peter's life. And what's fascinating here, and it comes through in John's account, we see the remarkable parallel between the way that Peter had denied the Lord, knowing the Lord, and the way that Jesus restores him. And it comes down to to that third question, and it clicked for Peter. As painful as Jesus' questions were, it was important for him to articulate that to Peter and for Peter to articulate what was in his heart. One writer says this, John has a threefold restoration taking place in a setting similar to where the threefold denial did. It's like revisiting the scene of a crime, only this time getting it right. Jesus knew Peter's heart. And he knew that what happened there in that courtyard was not the truth. He knew that Peter loved Jesus. And Jesus gave him this opportunity to express that directly to the face of Jesus himself. Jesus doesn't doubt it. He doesn't deny it. Instead, every time that Peter makes that assertion, he gives a follow-up command saying, Now, tend my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Peter does go on to shepherd Christ's sheep not only in Jerusalem, but he will have a ministry later on in, in Corinth. He will have a ministry later on in Rome. He will have a ministry not only to Jewish believers, but Peter will also have a ministry to Gentile, uh, Gentile believers as well. His shepherding is particularly evident in his writing of his two letters, First Peter and Second Peter, where there are references to the shepherd idea throughout those letters that seem to reflect Peter's continual remembrance of his restoration and his new calling. Peter will also enlist Mark to record his recollections of the words and works of Jesus to put them into writing, authoritative writing, to put them into Scripture. We could look at what Peter does with 1 Peter. I won't go through that right now, how he addresses his uh, audience there and what he does with with Second Peter as well and writing to shepherd Christ's sheep. He turns from that unreliable fair weather follower to the stalwart fulfiller of the commission. And this is ultimately demonstrated in that Peter laid down his life for his Savior. This was prophesied by Jesus even at that restoration, wasn't it? John chapter 21. Jesus had said some words to Peter there that show that he knew what kind of death that Peter would undergo to glorify God. Peter himself is acknowledging that that suffering is the way for any true Christian. He writes in his own letter, for example, 1 Peter 2.20, that we have been called for this purpose. We've been called to the purpose of suffering for what is right, since Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example to follow in his steps. The once a coward, Peter will now exhibit unwavering courage, and he will make the good confession that he failed to give at the crucifixion of Christ, the day would come, according to tradition, 
Peter was first forced to watch his wife's crucifixion. As she hung dying, he cried out to her, Remember the Lord. And then when Peter was readied for his own crucifixion, he asked to be nailed to the cross upside down because he was not worthy to die in the same manner of his Lord. He was willing to die for Christ so much so that he felt unworthy to do so. A martyr. And an example of transforming grace. And in all of our lives, we see the same kinds of contrast. Moments of great regret. Moments that bring great sorrow to our lives. But let us not remember what transforming grace does. And despite what might have already taken place, even in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, understand that he gives the grace. He gives the grace even to the extent that someday, even perhaps after a life of denial, of poor witness, of all kinds of other shameful things, God gives the grace that at the moment when it matters most, you will be able to give your life even unto death for your Savior. In conclusion, we read again from Griffith Thomas. He says, how different were these two men, Paul and Peter, in social circumstances, natural temperament, intellectual power, and spiritual opportunity. Yet there is room for both, and we need both. And however different they are, essentially one in Christ. He it is who reconciles all differences and provides for the use of the most diverse powers in his kingdom. We thank the Lord for the example of Peter, don't we? Let's pray that the Lord would make us the kind of man that Peter was, the kind of people that Peter showed us the example for, and ask that we too would be ones who would go from our fair-weather fickleness to courageous martyrdom if the Lord should so call him. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your scriptures. They are written for us in such vivid, transparent, direct ways. We see life really in, in, in clear perspective. We thank you for the, this man, Peter, who in so many ways represents who we are. Fickle, fair weather, fearful, hypocritical, and yet we see your love for him through Jesus Christ. And we see how your transforming grace can enable cracked and broken vessels to shine for your glory. We pray that you would do that in our lives. And we do this for your glory's sake. Amen.